three, two, one. <laughs> you sound bored. It's going to be a great episode, we promise you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even sure what part where the recording starts. <laughs> anyway. Well, we started with this, you know, like, hand clap thing, and it's just kind of become a tradition. So anyway, um, hi, welcome to Up yes. Discussion. And I finally just now remembered the thing I've been trying to remember the last five minutes before we started this. What are we going to call this episode? You're seeing this in real time. Oh, well, you know, we'll probably know for sure once we're done, but it could be uh, uh, overcoming end times itis, uh, the virus of end times itis. I know that's sort of what's the church's narrative of the hour. Um, is Jesus about to return? Is the rapture about to happen? I think all those topics will sort of be hit on in some way, perhaps. So, I mean, I remember ever since I was a little girl, most of my church experiences, there has been a fascination, not on my part, but leadership's part, a fascination on uh, the end times and the millennial and um, when and how Jesus is returning millennium. The millennials, that's the has... See, I don't even know what it's called. <laughs> no, we're so used to her hearing the term millennials. I can promise you that the least read book in my Bible is Revelation. <laughs> it just frankly overwhelms me, and I, I don't like spending a lot of energy on something that I don't feel like is ever going to be completely clear to me. Well, neither word is in there anyway, so you're you're safe on that. Neither millennial nor millennium is in the book of Revelation. <laughs> Good to know. People don't know that sometimes. Yeah, nor is the <laughs> word rapture. For sure not. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, we're just going to spend some time, mainly me asking Johnny questions on your behalf, because we get a lot of um, questions about what we believe about the end times. I can tell you, I don't know, <laughs> but he has a better answer than that. In fact, he started, um, I, don't, I don't know, was it maybe 10 years ago, eight years ago, writing a manuscript for a book that we've never published. Don't request it because right now we can't even find it. We're going to find it, but we're going to know the right time and if it should be put out. But basically he wanted to document, you know, his research and study into the end times and specifically breaking down some of the aspects of the book of Revelation. And so we've had conversations about it just between the two of us um, for the many years. Yeah, the name of that book is The Opening of the Seven Seals. And the reason that has to be addressed in some way, really uh, members, in, we'll just say your average member of the body, if we call a member, is not really interested, but pastors, when they hear my eschatology, my perspective of how things are going, where, where, where do you put the opening of the seals? And so I have, um, I have a book. Yeah, it's been, I think it's around 10 years. I even had C. Peter Wagner endorse it and say, this is some, you know, this is really revelatory, Johnny. And, and yet, I'm like 80, 90% happy with it, but I'm waiting for a little more revelation on it. And really the timing of the Lord, I can tell it hasn't been yet. Yeah, but it it, it was, it really opened my eyes to um, 
something that I really love about you that you don't approach um, scripture in in any kind of typical way. You you really try to leave your um, things that you've been taught behind and look with fresh eyes um, with the Holy Spirit on on scripture that has just been seen. You know, what I have heard taught, and I grew up in a private Christian school and went to different denominations of churches, and it was all pretty much one of only three or four different eschatologies. And I'm one who grew up with um, the movie. It wasn't the, the Left Behind series. It was the one oh, before how that. Oh, Howl the late great planet Earth? I don't remember. I just know, like, as a young child, it was so traumatic because that one. I was really worried about, like, there was, okay, some of you may remember this movie. Um, like everybody just disappears, whatever they're doing, all of a sudden they're raptured. And there is this dog in the car with its owner and the owner evidently loved Jesus because the owner was driving and then all of a sudden disappeared. So the car wrecks and the dog is in the car. I mean, like as a kid, that was so oh, wow. traumatic. A heathen dog. <laughs> I mean, just... But, um, you know, so we've had this fascination for years. I thought I would just kick this off really quickly by reading um, a couple of uh, questions that were sent in to us through email regarding the subject. And this is a little bit of a teaser of kind of the kind of things that Johnny's going to end up sharing with us today. Did you want to do that before I read this thing? Yeah. Okay. I'll just, I'll just read it. And then, um, you know, I think you'll eventually touch on this is yeah. what I'm trying to say. So she says, I would like to know if there's a difference between the kingdom age and the millennial reign. That's where I got the, is it millennial or millennium? Well, it would, it is millennial. You're right. It's okay. a millennial reign, but the, the thousand year period is called the millennium. Okay. So she says, I'd like to know if there's a difference between the kingdom age and the millennial reign. It's my understanding that the millennial reign is 1000 years of Christ reigning on earth with the glorified saints that return with him after the seven years of tribulation, raptured church and those who died in Christ, to set up his kingdom on earth. Is that what Johnny believes? I've been praying fervently for our nation over the last two years and realized that if God doesn't intervene, we will be destroyed. But I also believe that God is raising up a remnant church that will stand strong in spiritual warfare against Satan and his demons and that God will bring victory. She goes on to say, I believe we are not in the tribulation period yet. So that's always a question people have is, what's the tribulation going to be like? And even if we can't figure out when it is, um, will we be here or not? God is giving us a preview, she believes, of the book of Revelation. But she doesn't believe that we're currently in that biblical time yet. Bottom line, she really wants to understand if kingdom age is different from millennial age. So um, you did a program with Steve Schultz, your um, Johnny Unfiltered episode. Do you remember what episode it was? It was this the week. July, the July 11th one. Um, and in that episode, you released a prophetic word that you're going to read for us. Um, I know that he put this out through Elijah Streams and he also put it on Facebook, but it has since been removed from Facebook. So that tells you a little something about uh, the the nature of this word. And I just felt like it was important to document it again in another way. And so 
um, Johnny's going to read the prophetic word that he felt like God gave him this week for, for our generation. And it really moved me, um, even though I'm not so fascinated with the end times kind of stuff. This is the part of it that um, really burns in, in me as well. So let's hear it. Yeah, it's interesting that Facebook said it violated, I like how they put community standards. As if, as if they're not already being called communist, they're letting us know that communist uh, standards were violated. Anyway, we'll leave that aside. So here's what I, what I wrote and shared. Church, here is the narrative of the day. This is not a day when evil triumphs. This is not a day when Jesus returns to rapture us. The rapture is, was never a rescue operation. To believe so is to believe that God has scripted a losing storyline. He has not. Whatever the rapture is, it is not a reward for losing the planet despite being the overwhelming majority. Jesus did not say, I will build my church and then pull them out before the gates of hell encroach on it. No, he said, I will build my church and the very gates of hell will not prevail against it. That is the correct narrative of the day. The church is his ecclesia, which is the Greek word for church. Uh, and we should, I could, should fill in right here that he had a choice of calling it my temple, my synagogue, the normal words for church of the day that we would think of as church, but he used a word that had never been used in a religious context, ecclesia. I will build my ecclesia. Those were the ones that came out from the community. They met together in a community setting to discuss what they're, how they're going to tackle the challenges of the community. So he said, I will build my ecclesia, the ones that come out of their home and care about the things that are taking place. Like civic leaders. Like civic leaders. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The called out ones who must challenge the gates of hell where those gates are. Where are those gates of hell? Those gates of hell are positioned at the tops of the seven mountains. At the highest place in media, the economy, in government, in education, in family structures, in arts and entertainment, as well as in the structures that call themselves church, we would say the mountain of religion. If you are part of a church that is just a, a quote, reprieve from all that is going on in the world, you are not really part of a church. You are part of a Christian social club. Jesus said he would build his church, and this church of his would position itself against the very gates of hell. Mm -hmm. This isn't the rapture. This is the capture. <laughs> the very gates of hell must be captured and occupied by sons and daughters of light. Didn't he say that as well? Occupy until I return? Occupy what? Occupy your place of assignment. It is militant thinking. It is against the very places where Satan opens up gates of hell. Now I see it. This is where you occupy. This is where your assignment is. Church going is not to be a respite from hearing about that battle. Church is where orders for battling are to come from. Do you not understand that the gates of hell are a reality? I kind of felt this more from the Lord. Do you not understand that the gate of hell in media is occupied through agents in Twitter, CNN, Fox, CNBC, Facebook, Google, etc., etc.? 
Do you not understand that the economy has gates of hell in Wall Street, in the central banks, in Davos, in the World Economic Summit? Do you not understand that other gates of hell are in Hollywood, in Harvard, in Rome, in religious headquarters, the United Nations, the CDC, the WHO, the WHO, the Supreme Court, Congress, the Senate? Do you not know that he who illegally poses as president is referred to as Pedo Peter by his own son? Do you not know that criminals disguised as politicians and healthcare workers are still enforcing deadly vaccines? Do you understand, church, that you are the only ones I have empowered to remove the Luciferian criminals from these gates of hell? Do you really think a celebratory rapture is in order when you haven't even identified the correct battlefield? Do you think thousands of Christian social clubs that refuse to show up at the gates of hell are targets for rapture? Did I not say you are the salt of the earth, and if you as the salt don't bring the healing, the cleansing, and the preserving agent of salt into society structures, you are good for nothing but to be trampled on. Do you now think that being trampled upon is a precursor to the rapture? Do you not see that being trampled upon is the result of being Christian social clubs and not the ecclesia church I spoke of? Are you now afraid your members will leave you if you tell them that a gate of hell is a gate of hell? Are you now so cozy with darkness that you don't share light on it, that you don't expose it? Have I not allowed things to be so clear in society right now that it is not a matter of politics, but just right and wrong. Has not pure evil been made obvious? Do you still insist in playing it neutral? Come on, church, rise up. Rise up and be all I have foretold that you would be. Rise up as creation groans and travails for you to be my gates of hell challenging ecclesia. Rise up as I orchestrate a great day of deliverance for you and for the nations of the world. Arise and shine with courage, with conviction, with clarity. Leave your lukewarm Christian social club if its effect on you is lukewarmness. Find my ecclesia in places not called church. Recognize my ecclesia and my ecclesia leaders in very untraditional settings if necessary. Recognize my ecclesia whether it is in a building called church or an online community or wherever it is. Be taught by those who understand this narrative that I lay out for you. My finest hour upon the earth is coming, and it is intended to be yours as well as you move in alignment with me. Carry me, carry my presence, carry my storyline. The best is yet to come. So good, so powerful, so timely. So obviously this is a passion of yours. You, um, one of the clearest things you've written on this is from our RISE handbook, um, RISE, a reformer's handbook for the seven mountains. You can get this from our website, restore7.org. We also have a course that is exactly the same word for word as the book. So if you're more of an auditory or visual learner, um, then you can get the course. If you would rather have the book, then you can get the book. My point with that is that in the very back, we added an appendix. And it's really a chapter all of its own. It's, um, you know, four, five, six pages long, but it's called Overcoming End Times Itis. And 
um, you know, we'll hit on more of those specifics. But my my thought with that is that if you like what Johnny's going to speak in today, then you may want to get this book so that you can dig into it a little bit further. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of that, so I don't know if you mentioned what I called it. It is appendix, but it is like a chapter. Overcoming end times itis. And, and I call it, you know, this was before the COVID-19 virus came. Right. But this was a more dangerous virus. And I say perhaps, I just read this intro, perhaps nothing has been more sabotaging to the body of Christ's assignment to be salt and light and thus transforming society than what I call the virus of end times itis. A condition marked by the expectation of soon coming end of world scenarios. And then what I go on and tell in there, uh, Elizabeth, of course you, you've seen it. The end times-itis involves believing that either the rapture or Jesus' return or a one world government or the Antichrist or Armageddon or some whole list of cataclysmic judgments is right around the corner. And so I, I tell how this virus saps our resolve and allows for fear to reign. And it's so widespread among Christians of all denominations and even among really a lot of false religions that uh, as, as I was writing this, as many of you who might be reading this right now might be taken aback at this point, thinking this is the obvious narrative that's supposed to be there for the body of Christ. Um, and Especially I, now that things have gone so yeah. strange over the last couple of years, um, people are, I think, are speculating more than ever, you would think. But in reality... I love how you point out here, page after page, the history of people thinking this way actually goes back over 2,000 years, starting with Paul himself speculating. Well, and what you just said, I think I, I list 40 significant names, mm -hmm. and I tell that this is not even by any means exhaustive. 40 names, well-known people, leaders in the body of Christ, generation after generation, who believed the return of Jesus, the rapture, whatever, mm -hmm. some version of it was going to uh, happen at any moment. Yep. And that this is what dominated uh, this end times mindset, end times thinking, whether it's a rapture, some version uh, of you know cataclysmic outcome, that that was what was next. And it was going to happen in that generation, that's kind of the fatal error with this for every generation is they believe everything they read in the scriptures um, is going to be fulfilled in their generation. And, and then there's even a, a distortion of that. What I don't have in there, what could be pointed out quickly is just the doctrine of the rapture. And, and again, we encourage you to go do the research on your own. Uh, the doctrine of the rapture, the way is taught in the church now um, the way it has been advanced really since the mid 1800s um, is only something that begun around in the mid 1800s this was not the early church fathers the apostles this is not what was advanced again we pointed out the word rapture is not even in the scripture the the, the thessalonian scripture about we which are alive and remain will be caught up with him. This thing caught up um, uh, with him is the only thing that could even be construed in some second or tertiary way as being the rapture. But just so you know the history, just so you have it and you have record, you want to know where you're going to look for it sometime. Um, the, 
the, the, the key names of those who have espoused an advanced rapture uh, theology or the rapture concept because there was a concept, uh, kind of a, um, a vision um, and set of encounters with the Lord somebody had or different people had that led them to even begin to advance this. Uh, the names we'll put out are John Nelson Darby. He was a Plymouth Brethren, the denomination, if we call it that, Plymouth Brethren leader, lived from 1800 to 1882. He was a big name for advancing uh, what we would say the rapture theology. A name not known, it preceded him, was Emmanuel Lacunza. He's a uh, Chilean Jesuit priest. Hmm. And there is some writing that he had that could be construed, I think he had a book titled, um, I forget what the name of his book was, but in it, it was something in Spanish, but part of his version of the rapture was only those who had taken the Eucharist would do it, would, would be raptured. And then uh, Edward Irving in 1792-1834, uh, he's one that began to have these meetings with a lot of manifestations of the Holy Spirit. In fact, he got shut down and shunned and, and shut down by the church for the questionable nature of it. It's really hard to know what was going on there that he had a followers called the Irvingites. But in 1830, this is the big deal. This is the spark of rapture officially. 1830, in his meetings, a young Scottish girl named Margaret MacDonald uh, fell into a trance. And then she began to uh, prophesy and tell, she prophesied and would say what she was seeing for hours. And, and she was the first one that espoused this perspective of a rapture where Jesus comes, and there she had two parts of it. First of all, comes to his church first, and then there's a secondary part where he comes back to judge society. What's not noted by many, even proponents of the rapture, number one, they don't know that she was the origin of it, but she also, in her version of the rapture, only those that were filled with the Holy Spirit get raptured as well. So, that and, a, and just to clarify, like rapture, meaning, I always thought rapture was synonymous with the return of Christ, but rapture is a particular way of thinking, if I'm understanding it correctly, that Jesus returns and takes us all, like he just like hangs in the sky. Those of us who know him go up with him, and then the world is left with those that don't believe in him and they keep living here without us um right that's my understanding of what the yeah rapture it's not there are is. variations but it's not synonymous with the return of christ because return of christ is biblical and so we're not we're not equating the return right. of christ with the rapture rapture the part we're contending against or contesting against is really this idea that there is a a premature rescue operation from heaven that where we don't have to actually confront darkness that we're not the salt and light that we're not as he said i will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against them but that the gates of hell are obviously too much for us so he comes and conveniently evacuates us from the planet while everybody else has to go through like this whole tribulation thing yeah. So anyway, Margaret MacDonald, there's a man named Robert Norton, published her visions and prophecies in a book titled The Restoration of Apostles and Prophets in Catholic Apostolic Church. That was, uh, he did it out of London in 1861. 
So then John Nelson Darby, remember the Plymouth Brethren leader, he visited Margaret MacDonald in her home when she had these trances and began to teach rapture. He really embraced it. And then he actually wrote, because he had the capability of doing so, he wrote a theological premise and extracted his own things that had never been done before by any religious leader. So he created a, a, a theology to it. And his denomination of Plymouth Brethren basically received it. But Darby's teachings, John Nelson Darby's, were embraced radically by Cyrus Schofield. So if you've heard of the Schofield Bible, uh, and he lived from 1843 to 1921, and he put it all into a Schofield Reference Bible of 1909, and that's really what legitimized it and made it go into all denominations, where it's, I don't know, 80-90% of the traditional denominations think, isn't this what everybody believes? They don't understand, again, where this started, how it came, and it's literally uh, a commentator, a Bible commentator, Cyrus Schofield, that believed in this, and again, the source of it is, and nothing wrong with there being a 15-year-old that has visions and trances, but when you understand that's where this thing is founded and based on, and um, and this is what continued to legitimize it, and then it, you know, it is known that, uh, you know, even Billy, Billy Graham, uh, his preaching and messaging really was influential in spreading this as the official uh, doctrine of Christians. And, and then we have, you know, the Left Behind series, 16 books by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins. And, and then movies. And movie yeah. And, it, you know, it just made an uh, immense amount of money. And it, again, it championed this um, and to the world as well. This is what Christians believe, not realizing this type of thinking did not even exist at all before 1830. And so this is just a recent thing. And then this... So prior to 1830, a lot of, I mean, every single generation, like we said, starting with Paul, speculated that Jesus's return was any moment. So that's, you know, every generation has thought that, and it's okay to wonder, right? It's okay to wonder. But to then take that step further that happened later in the 1800s and then continues today was actually diabolical because it undermines, I mean, you see how it, it, it didn't just, it, it, I believe it was literally inspired by um, our enemy, Satan, because it undermines the character and nature of God, because we know that God is a God who is victorious. He's not. I love the way you you talk about like that's not a storyline in yeah. the if you don't know let's say you're in a movie and you don't know what part you're playing yeah. or the story that's being told you're going to play the wrong part if you think that the movie you're in is the Alamo where everybody just you know bravely goes down with the ship kind of thing then you're going to you're going to live life completely different and so you see how the enemy used this um, sick theology, really. It is. It's, it's, it's from it's the gates. It's from hell. Very evil. Used it and used maybe good people right. to promote it. I'm not saying that everyone who promoted it or has believed right. it is evil, but the origins of it clearly caused more than one generation to sit back and, and have an excuse to literally do nothing. 
And now we are reaping the consequences of that literally in every area of culture. And the very thing that, you know, you say in here about the one world government and all that is going to take us out. That's what they believe. Actually, it's like self-fulfilling yeah. prophecy. Yeah. No, it, <clears throat> it's absolutely um, what happens is you make way for it to happen. When Jesus said again, because people say, well, how do you know? How do we know you're right? Just you versus them. Why should we believe you? Well, I'm going to not give you some other person in history as being the one that started. That's why people ask me, are you preterist, pre-preterist, pre-trib? I'm not going by any of those. Let's just go straight to Jesus. What did he say? Right. He said all of those are man-made ideas they, they, the, or right, they, man's interpretation of what they think is. They in. put them together. And, and here's what I like to stick with is what Jesus said. He first of all said in his first message, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. If you don't fulfill your role as salt, if you don't bring the cleansing and healing there, it's going to rot. It's going to trample you. If you aren't the light, and he said, don't do it under a bushel, you know, do this before men. They may see your good works and glorify your father is in heaven. He also said the very verse that was repeated over and over in the prophetic word, I will build my church mm -hmm. and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So more than it being an evil, like evil people advancing right. it, it's too convenient. It's, it's the children of Israel when they're saying, here's your promised land, but there's giants. Like, we don't want to face giants. We want Jesus to face giants. And so we cry and say, we're going to go back. No, you rescue us uh, or we're not going to do it. So it's the Caleb, no, they will be bread for us. And so that one gets mocked by the 10 false spies, we'll say, uh, false reporters that aren't supposed to be doing it. Jesus said in uh, through Acts 3.21, uh, that it, the scripture tells us that Jesus is held in the heavens Till the mm -hmm. restoration of till 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 until the restoration of all things spoken of by his servants, the prophets. So the prophets spoke of a time where we would arise and shine during darkness, and nations could walk to the light of the sons of God. That's Isaiah 61 through 3. Prophet Habakkuk 2:14. The whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. How can that happen if we are in this antsy moment to get out of the planet? If we are in this uh, uh, in this script, in this narrative, if we're in this false movie where, no, things are going bad, that means it's a good thing we're about to be to be rescued. Right. Why would you want to even offer solutions to make things better if you think this is going to somehow speed up the end of times for Jesus to come back? And what I point What out, does that have to do with the restoration uh, of all things? Yeah, 1,000%. One, 1, and why we recommend, you know, this the book Rise is our last one we did together. It kind of extracts the, the the best of four or five of our books on the Seven Mountain Mandate, and it's just as valuable as gold. It gives you your your assignment to the Seven Mountains, what it's like, who rules and reigns, what's what's our call there, and how to come in the opposite spirit. But this appendix on overcoming end timesitis is so huge because even since I've written, even what we've discovered, Elizabeth, the last year is is that the funding and financing of advancing this theology yeah. of, of seminaries and ministries have been backed. A name you would know would be Soros, but Soros Connections and before Soros, who brought money to Soros, those people are the ones who have financed this narrative of Christianity because it's very convenient to Luciferian objectives. It's very convenient to have the very people, the only people, Jesus says, 
that can defeat the gates of hell. So they're operating in gates of hell. That's what they do at the tops of every one of the mountains. They take it over. They make it very dark. And he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against them. Well, if the church has embraced a distorted narrative, no, you don't actually challenge gates of hell. You just stay in the four walls of the church. You get some people saved. Obviously, gates of hell are too tough for us. Obviously, Goliath can't be taken down. And so with that, we... Um, we find a, we're going to find a lesser role because we're in, as you said, we're in a lesser movie. If you're in a movie where the goal is to figure out how to die valiantly, uh, yeah, (laughs) die valiantly or not even that valiantly and how, how to escape. Um, and so you're not going to have a very heroic, uh, attempt there at all. So this is super important to understand that money, millions of dollars Mm -hmm. has, been uh, thrown into backing up ministries and the message and seminaries and theological seminaries. I'm not naming them right now, but I will just say the enemy is not afraid of even five billion more souls coming to Jesus. He doesn't care. He doesn't care. He's not trying to limit heaven from being populated. He does. This is part of what Christians, they're like, no, no, no. Because they're like, what do you mean? We think the whole objective, everything here is about getting souls saved. The enemy literally doesn't care. You want proof? Why is he for abortion? When an abortion automatically ensures that a child of God goes straight to heaven. Every abortion, 50 to 70 million a year, every one of those, Satan is behind killing them. Why is he behind killing them? You think, why is he doing that? He's giving them a straight ticket to heaven. That proves to you he's not concerned about that. What's he concerned about? He wants to give God a black eye. You cannot fulfill your storyline. You have said the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of your glory. Nobody's standing up with you. You've said your sons and daughters are going to rise and shine. You've called them to be salt and light. They're not. They're just going to be passive. It's the original uh, Garden of Eden uh, method of he just wants us to see God completely different than he really is. I mean, if you have the most perfect father who loves with the most perfect love, but in reality, there's nothing that Satan can do to harm him, then what does he go after? He goes after the object of God's affection, which is all of his sons and daughters, and causes us to see him and therefore experience him in a way that is not true to who God is. And that's why it all ends with the knowledge of the glory of God covering the earth. It's it's the extreme opposite. It ends with everyone having access, whatever the end is. I'm not even trying to define the end, but as scripture says, in the end times, the knowledge of the glory of God, everybody's going to have access to the truth of who God is and how he is. They can decide, do they still want to know him and re- or reject him? you know, but, but what a perfect way to do that is to cause a whole generation and multiple generations to settle for a a God that would just barely be able to get us out of here in the nick of time because the enemy, of course, in this scenario, he's going to make himself look more powerful than he is because he, you know, just, just, 
did such a good job of overwhelming the earth and 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 that narrative is kind of where you can see what that looks like is the children of Israel wandering in the desert wilderness for 40 years they were promised a promised land where they would be the head not the tail mm -hmm. because that's his choice because he says like I want light in high places and and that they would be above and not beneath and all that that was his message that he was his idea and but because of their unbelief it tells us later tells us in the new testament because of an evil heart of unbelief they entered not and they had this built-in assumption every time they saw the enemy like he's too big we can't take him on there's no way this can happen and that just goes with the narrative of today's like anything that uh, requires faith we say well that's in the millennium Anything that is a significant advance for the kingdom of God after Jesus returns. Right. And they think it's, <clears throat> they, they self-delude themselves that it's based on their appreciation of scripture, but it's literally revealing their status of faith. It's the same way or lack of it. Their doubts, like we can't overcome these things. We can't arise and shine. We can't be, be these things. And so, so, uh, so why does God care so much that we have faith and why would it make him so angry when there's doubt and unbelief it's because he's so relational it's because that what he's always wanted was intimacy with us relationship with us so it comes back to you don't trust who i am you don't know who i am you despite the natural you're refusing to believe what is true in the spiritual realm and and there's something that happens on this side of eternity when we step into faith rather than doubt, not as a spiritual exercise, but we step into faith rather than doubt specifically about who he is and what he's like. And he's not a God that just has gone through all that he's gone through to have a church, a bride who just hides and quivers until he finally just, you know, gets us out of here. Is what, I mean, what do people that believe and teach the rapture theology and a lot of what you're talking about, what do they do with scriptures like the parables that Jesus told, like the wheat and the tares, how the wheat and the tares would grow up together and then what would be removed? Not the wheat, but the tares. And it what says, do they do with that? And the end, it says, as in the days of Noah shall be the coming of the Son of Man. Well, what happened in the days of Noah? The righteous remained. Yeah. If you read Psalm 37, it says, soon you will look and you will not see the wicked. That It's the righteous that inherit the earth. The meek shall inherit the earth. The righteous will inherit the earth. They just conveniently run over it with other scriptures, with distortions, not really that many scriptures, one or two, the ones kind of we're talking about, they get the Thessalonians ones, we which are alive will remain, will be caught up with him. They pull on scripture and ignore the, the overwhelming voice from Genesis to Revelation of all scripture. And this is, this is what people don't understand, this is not a side strategy of the enemy. This is his main strategy. Mm. Because if, if you have light, if you're because he says, I'll build my church, and we're supposed to be the ones that carry the brighter light, especially if we get filled with the Holy Spirit. And if the enemy's trying to advance darkness, just say strategically, if you're Satan and you advance darkness, then who's your enemy? Light. Right. Nobody but light is your enemy. And so if you can 
talk light into staying pooled in one place, say the mountain of religion, the church. So I said, don't hide it under a bushel. Let it be before men. But if he can talk you, he can deceive you, he can seminarily produce materials, resources, reproduce pastors and leaders that will say that's what your assignment is. It's like they've just, it's number one strategy <clears throat> because that just, that's, you know, their work is essentially uh, done. Yeah. Uh, they The rest is easy because the people, as when it's, when Jesus showed up, says the people who were in darkness saw a light. That when you're not in alignment with Jesus, when you're not in alignment with he who is the light, then your light doesn't have an ability really to shine through. And so you fall to the darkness. So it's clear to see why this has been the strategy. And what we point out, and you can look this up, is that, and this is what is important for you all to know as well, I did a, a, a study pretty in-depth on every generation since Jesus. <clears throat> and every generation since Jesus has believed they were they were going to be the last generation. And you could say all the main voices, you know, we don't know what main voices in God's eyes were, but if you go generation after generation after generation, you find out who key spiritual voices and leaders, they believed Jesus was about to return in some way. The end was about to take place. And, and they would anticipate it often out of this perception, well, it's so dark that it must be. And that perception is not fresh. It's not new. There's people say, well, what about the signs of the times? There has been way more signs of the times generation after generation. I'll just mention a couple of Elizabeth, of course. Yep. Uh, Clement of Rome in 90 AD, he was the one, he was the bishop after Peter. Uh, and, and it was the bishop of Rome. He spoke and said that any day now, Jesus will return. Well, we just know it didn't happen. Uh, I jump around on dates, but Irenaeus, a famous early church theologian, prophesied along with two other well-known Christian leaders that Jesus would be returning in 500 AD. One of them used the dimension of Noah's Ark as his template. Again, they were wrong. Augustine of Hippo, uh, 354 to 430 AD, famous church leader, strongly influenced Western Christianity and Western philosophy, prophesied that Jesus would definitely return by 650 AD. These were guys that were willing to put it off a couple hundred years even, which nobody does does today. And it goes on and on. Uh, Can I highlight a couple? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. So, of course, some names that we'd all be familiar with. Martin Luther, the famous Protestant reformer, said the end of the world could, no, could be no later than 1600 AD. He then had another date that came and went. He, too, was wrong. And then John Wesley, John Calvin, John Knox, John Wycliffe all had dates come and go for when the end had to be. You'd think we would learn, you know, our heroes in the faith are, were wrong. There's something about the name John and the end times, which I think is funny that you wrote there. This one was my favorite one that you wrote. <laughs> Can you guess which one this is? Mary Bateman? Mary Bateman. You got to tell that one, yeah. Uh, you said, not previously famous, but in 1806, she caused an uproar as she had a hen that laid eggs that said on the eggs, Christ is coming. It was discovered, of course, that she was etching the eggs and putting them back into the chicken so that they would people would see the chicken lay the egg and think, you know, it had happened supernaturally. 
is just wrong on so many levels. Yeah, is what he wrote it, it, was, it was a bad yoke. No, it was a, a yoke was on them. I'm trying to do another corny joke from that. <laughs> well, you can look at a couple more, but like 1000 AD, you know, it's coming to 1000. So yeah. the, the mass majority of ministers and the Pope himself, the Pope himself prophesied end of day scenario. There were riots in Europe associated with it, pilgrims heading to Jerusalem. Again, they were wrong. Then there was a terrible famine in Europe. They talk about signs of this time, time 1005 to 1006 AD. There was like, this is it. This is it. This is all these worst case scenarios from Revelation are happening now. And so this must be happening. And so I literally go, you know, in, in the Black Plague, 1346, it took a third of Europe. How could there be any more confirmation? This must be about time for Jesus to return. If a third of Europe is wiped out. It was a definitive sign. Uh, uh, and so, you know, 90 something percent of all ministers were preaching that. And other names you would know, Elizabeth was mentioned some, of course, then there's 1666, because that's 1666 AD. <laughs> I might've actually believed it then. <laughs> Great fear among European Christians as the 1665 plague uh, had wiped out much of London. So they had up to the six six. Yeah. Okay. Then you've got like in more recent days, uh, <laughs> Jehovah's Witnesses. They have named dates for Armageddon over and over and over again. They were wrong. Um, Hal Lindsey in the book he mentioned earlier, the late great planet Earth. We're still here. Tim LaHaye, Jerry Jenkins, Chuck Smith, Pat Robertson, Lester Summerall, um, Jack Van M. You know people that. We've just followed all the way up until, okay, what do you think about Christians who um, read more recent books? Like, I guess one's called The Harbinger. And, um, you know, do you have any, any thoughts on that? Is Other than being a waste of maybe money because they ended up being wrong? Well, it's just, there. it's amazing. Yeah, I know he has another recent book. Uh, that ignores, uh, you know, Jonathan Kahn from what he said in 2012. And um, he's listed as prophetic, a prophecy expert. And, you know, I just think, uh, you know, I'm ready to have grace on whoever prophesies. You can get timing, you can get other things wrong, occasional, uh, you know, wrongness. We'll say that's biblical model for the New Testament prophetic voices. Like we see in part, we prophesy in part, Paul said. And so, yeah, it's not the same standard as the Old Testament where they had to be 100% uh, correct because there was no Holy Spirit. There was no Jesus that you receive and you check things with your inner witness. There's no inner witness for the Old Testament because that was not available to them. And so it's a new standard. But we're called, we have people, um, there's several in Mark Bills, um, and I haven't even read them all, but bottom line, they said scenarios, some end time scenarios in different different directions that we're not right the first time yet. They come out with a follow-up book um, and it will be a bestseller book as well. It kind of reminds me of uh, Harold Camping, I think I mentioned. And, yeah. and there's like 89, I forget which year it came out first, you know, 80, 88 reasons Jesus is coming this year. And then you sell one and a half million books and then it doesn't happen. And then it's 89 reasons why it's 89 and you did a mathematical error. So it's going to happen then. And you sell another million books and then it's, in we 91. are so gullible. And it just, it, that's why I call it a virus, end times -itis. It's It's literally viral. We don't understand it's viral because we have something in us that's wanting 
an escape. We, we want an easy way. We're just like the children of Israel. Yeah. We're like, we want to follow the 10 spies that say, no, you know what? It's literally impossible to do what you're talking about. So we're going to, you know, there's, it's a different solution. So that we've come up with the creative solution. Jesus zaps us out of confrontation. And because of that is why we're facing the challenges we face right now in society. Product of this Ecclesia church having chosen to be irrelevant from a doctrinal standpoint. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Jesus himself, Matthew 24, 36, said no one, including himself, would know the time of his return. He is coming back, you know, and wherever that is in terms of the book of Revelation and how we correctly interpret that, it, to me, it's irrelevant. Why would we even try to predict when he's coming back? When he made it clear himself, no one will know. Well, that's one thing. And I don't know if we want to kind of go full circle back to where we started from as well as the question that was being asked. And, you know, he did validate knowing a season when he's coming. And so, but so many people have given dates. I've had the challenge for the last 15 years through my platform, wherever I have all kinds of date setting of when something's going to happen, or it's this September, this Rosh Hashanah, this something and another of some collapse and some falling apart and the Antichrist taking over, over, over and over. And so, yeah, it's like the one thing he says we can't do, we decide that we can do is the foolishness of it. And, but then he does tell us, um, you know, the Acts 3.21 uh, not, that's not when this is occupied till I return, but he says, Jesus is held yeah, in the heavens. Yeah. He gives an until mm-hmm. the restoration of all things spoken of by his servants, the prophets. And so we're like, does anything now look like anything they prophesied? And is there just some real improper processing taking place? Again, I think it's convenience and a lack of faith. Back to this lack of faith. And faith, as Elizabeth was saying, ultimately it's really how big can your God be? Yeah. Uh, and, and it's not just this you know, uh, religious terminology, you have faith. It's like, can you see him the size he is? Can you see his narrative the size he is? Can you see his plan the size it is? That's why Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth will be the big question mark. Will you know who I am? And even Matthew 25, the... um, where he describes the sheep nations and the goat nations, they're delineated by basically they didn't know whether it was him or not, but they cared about what he cared about. They cared about, they, they knew him, but they didn't know they knew him. Cause the question is, Oh, I did when did you, when were you in prison and I visited you? I didn't realize that was you, but he's saying it doesn't matter. What matters is that you knew what I'm really like. And you cared about what I cared about. You you were true to who I created you to be, which is a reflection of me. And so to me, an aspect of that, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith in the earth? It is, will, will he find those who have stayed true to who they know God to be? So in that, help me focus back on your initial direction yeah, question. So- you were were having and and so I don't so know. So let's if talk about okay. Let's talk about the book of Revelation for a minute. Okay. And then we'll end up with the question that was originally asked in the email. Um 
you give a can you give us a little teaser of some of what you wrote about in the manuscript of the book that you've not put out yet but the opening of the seven seals and for people that are like me who have kind of just not read a whole lot in the book of revelation um give us a little bit of a foundation of what you're talking about well first of all remember the book of revelation is called the revelation of jesus christ it's really not intended to be the revelation of the antichrist the beast the false prophet the devil or anything else and, and so um, that's where we miss it, number one. Mm. Part of our messaging, even on the seven mountains, we share out of Revelation 4 and out of Revelation 5, how John was taken to heaven. And he's shown, you know, the future, really. And he's shown past, present, future. And he is seen that essentially through Adam and Eve and what they did and, and their disobedience, they gave up all authority that was given to them originally. And so... It has to do now with this picture that is shown is there's one who sits on the throne, the father, and he has the, the scrolls. You know, this is a terminology anybody who looks into Revelation enough. And so we'll just read that verse 4-2, Revelation 4-2. Immediately I was in the spirit. And behold, the throne sat in heaven and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and sardius stone in appearance. There's a rainbow around the throne, etc., etc. 24 thrones, 24 elders, lightnings and thunders. And it talks about that whenever, um, uh, that he who sat there, you have to go to actually uh, chapter five. They can work together four and five, and I have to not go down the rabbit trails. I want to. I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So you got God the Father holding this scroll. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open to the scroll and to loose its seals? But it said no one was able to. Verse 4, no one was able to open and read the scroll. Notice that. And so then it goes into, then there's the lamb that was slain. The line of the tribe of Judah is Jesus. He has prevailed to open the scroll and reloose, to loose its seven seals. And the lamb... Um, as though it had been slain, having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits. And he came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of the Father. And there's a new song, a celebration in heaven. And uh, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and you have redeemed us to God by your blood, not just redemption, though, out of every tribe and tongue and every nation. And have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. So it's not just that in the future assignment. It goes with all the kingdom assignment that we're talking about on earth as it is in heaven. And we shall reign on the earth. And there is this new song that, uh, that, that comes out from these innu this innumerable company of, of angels. And they sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power. Seven things, power and riches and wisdom and strength and hope, you know, and honor and glory and blessing. Seven, one for each of the seven mountains. We tell about that in our book. So that's but some background you need to know even coming into this thing of opening of the seven seals because people go, okay, I get that. Pastors say, Johnny, I get that. That's good. What Jesus did and allowed for us to rule and reign on the earth and et cetera, it's good. And, 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 and wasn't John, John was sad when he was shown throughout history that no one could open the scroll. So it was a sad thing that the scroll was not being opened. And then there was rejoicing when Jesus, the, the lamb that was slain, was found worthy to take the scroll from the Father's hand and to open. Very much so. It even says, and John said, I wept much because no one was found worthy. So you get this, this important point Elizabeth's making. You get this point that, okay, the opening of this scroll, like 
all of heaven is is on uh, you know positive pins and needles for this to happen. It's like when's this going to happen, and then it does, and so there's this explosion of worship and like yes, 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 and then you start the next chapter and it's connected to it, and because it's talking about these seven scrolls, it says now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals and heard one of the four living creatures saying, "Come." With a voice like thunder, come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And he sat on it a bow, and a crown was given to him. He went around conquering and to conquer. Then it's the second seal, and another horse, a fiery red. And on his horse it was given him to take peace from the earth, and the people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. Then the next one, a third one, a black horse. And then it talks about famine, terrible famine that takes place because of that. And then the fourth one is is uh, an even worse, worse creature, a pale horse, and a fourth of the earth was killed by him from the beast. And then you go to the next one, and, and, and anyway, it's seal after seal after seal are bad. And you're like... So the scroll has seven seals. Uh, one scroll has seven seals on it. And just what we know about ancient scrolls is that when, when something was written they would take a wax seal and seal it shut so that that scroll was not opened and read by someone that it shouldn't have been. It was their way of ensuring that it was opened at the right time. Yeah. So seven seals are on the one scroll. Jesus was found worthy to break those seven seals and open it. Because it says in that verse one of chapter five, a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals and so there is a, they are sealed from inside, if you properly understand this. And, uh, but we don't have time. That goes into the, the book that I haven't released. I just realized I really can't go down that, that rabbit trail. But it's not really a rabbit trail. It's an important part of it. So the whole question is, why does heaven rejoice? Why do the angels finally break loose? Why is there a loud angel going, who will open? Who like, why are they longing for this to happen if all it does is release death and destruction and a quarter die here and a third die over here? And it's just, it's not explainable. Mm -hmm. So that's what pastors ask me. It's like, well, but how does, when does that happen? And, and so, people typically think of that as the tribulation, right? They think of it in different ways. I don't, I don't even know. Uh, that would be one. One scenario. One scenario that's an obvious one for a lot of people. But it said, now I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals and I heard one of the four lips come and see. But I point out that what, what takes place, this is when I write the book because you're asking what comes out. It says the, the, the lamb opened one of the seals. Previous chapter talks about who can loose them and read them. This is not reading the, the seals. This, this is just, this is not reading the scroll. This is just loosing it's the seal. It's breaking the seal, right? It's breaking the seal. So a seal is a sign of authority. So it's breaking the authority. Yes, but here's what we're trying to point out. That what the Lord showed me is each one of these, for instance, that first one that talks about the white horse, that relates to the mountain of government. And if you go to the next one, it relates to, they actually go in exact same order as the way it's talked about the seven mountains the seven areas in Revelation Worthy 4 Worthy is the Lamb to receive glory, which would be Power arts and entertainment, wisdom, mountain yeah. of education, etc. And so it goes in the same order. And so then the next one is mammon. And the, um, 
Mammon is the principality on the mountain of economy. Really, it's going, what it's doing, just for, for we want to make this very simple so you can understand it, what the book will come out and say, is that um, what begins to happen is it reveals to us that this, when he opens, and that word open is to, to, break. to, to break, will release from the curse that was on it, essentially. Oh, wow. And so it was the lamb who opens it. So the lamb removes the curse that's on every one of the seal. The seven is, curses. Well, the seven <laughs> seals are the present status of the seven mountains. Yeah. It's not a future thing. When it says, and I saw, and they had power to kill one, one third, that has to do with the mountain of family and what Baal does on it. And it's not a future thing. It's ongoing it's happened generation after generation it's not right? hard to see we know right now yeah. just through abortions yeah through abortions now we understand how they've been killing us even through vaccinations how they've been doing it through food that they intentionally uh have not be good for us and that we're dying from it so we're talking about you're waiting for seven seals to oh when are they going to go for and try to kill one quarter of us here and one third they've been doing it they've been doing it and so the lamb that came he came and broke the power. They no longer have legal right to do that because he paid the price with his own blood. So you're saying that he broke these seven seals when he triumphed, when he went to the cross and triumphed over death and was resurrected. That was the breaking. That was when he was found worthy to loose or break the curse of those seals. He regained the authority over each of those curses that are expressed in each area of culture. Is that what you're saying? I'm not only saying, I'm, I'm not even saying as my opinion. It's literally verse nine of chapter five. And they sang a new song because this is part of the new song. The old song was pretty good in Revelation four, but they don't sing anymore. You, speaking of Jesus, are worthy to take the scroll that we're talking about and to open its seals. Only he could do. Why? Break the power. Why? For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. So you understand, it's only through his blood price sacrifice he regained that which is lost. He has double rights over us in creation. He has creator's rights and then redeemer's rights. He paid the price for this. And so, and then it goes, and you have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Reign where? In these seven gates of hell. They essentially were telling about seven gates of hell and what's been happening, how the enemy has been killing us. And he's like, he doesn't have a legal right to do that anymore. But what did he tell us in the Great Commission? Go, therefore, all authority is given me in heaven and earth. That yeah. goes with uh, Matthew 28, 18. After he resurrected, he said all authority, when he gathered his disciples, all power and authority is mine. Go, therefore, and bring the nations under my discipleship. And so that is what it's talking about. It and doesn't what, mean... what do we disciple them into? We disciple them into the knowledge yes. of who God is and how he is. The nuance. No, which just, yeah. goes back to the premise that you said the book of Revelation was even originally written in. It was to be a revelation, not of the end times, but a revelation of Jesus Christ. Yeah. And this is telling us this understanding of the scroll and the seven seals and all of the the things is telling us what Jesus did for us, what he accomplished. 
and then the authority that he therefore gave us. And the authority is not just to, so we can say, um, we made things right. We made things better. Like we've got utopia waiting for us in heaven. If that was the goal, the goal yeah. is not utopia on earth. The goal is the knowledge of who and how God is filling the earth. And we can't give away what we don't have. So if we don't see Jesus correctly, how will we even understand, you know, who what he accomplished for us? And if we think that he hasn't yet accomplished it, because we think that these negative bad things that are listed in Revelation have actually never happened, right? you know, I think, how, how would you tell someone who went through the Holocaust that, you know, the tribulation hasn't happened yet? I think it's relative to what you've been through, and it shows us the plan of the enemy has always been the same throughout every generation, is to kill, steal, and destroy. Right. And literally, the, the main thing he's trying to destroy is our perception of who God is and what he's like. And so he gets us stuck in these ruts of agreeing with each of these areas of culture, staying like they are, getting worse and worse, because maybe our wrong Jesus that we've created in our mind will come back and rescue us from it when he already has. Exactly. So back to the original question from this letter as well that you were Yes. Reading. And they're asking, I can't remember exactly what. Does Johnny believe? And it's she asked versus... specifically, um, she wants to understand if the kingdom age is different from the millennial age. And uh, does Johnny believe, let's see, where was that? <clears throat> is well, that what Johnny believes? That. The millennial reign is a thousand years of Christ reigning on earth with the glorified saints that return with him after the seven years of tribulation and raptured church and those who died in Christ to set up his kingdom on earth. I will I will cut to the chase and say, no, Johnny does not believe that. Well, <laughs> But you've got a little glimpse into what you do believe. Well, I'll say it another way. Is yeah, people want to ask what I believe based on what are already different camps and positions. And I just refuse kind of to do so. I don't, I won't even study them. So I might, I might be, biblical. um, well, yeah. They're man's speculation. Yeah. Right? I mean, people think they're extracting them from a biblical. And so yeah. people would argue, people who are, who believe in them, um, might argue and say, well, it's a biblical position. It's just, we, it doesn't have a biblical name for it. And so I'd rather, I like to stick with uh, Jesus's language and terminology for it. And so as to, you know, the kingdom age, the millennial age, and, and just, you know, the Lord to me has said there are a lot of things that are way in the future. There's not a lot of revelation on because I give you revelation what's relevant for your time and your generation. So God speaking. Yeah. God speaking that. So it's, you know, it's sort of, uh, a, you know, you have a four-year-old boy and he's got, well, you got Tinker Toys or Legos or whatever, and he's going to build something with it. And, and, and somebody asks him, but, it, you know, but what, what do you want to major in in college? And, and it's, it's like, it's just not time. 
you know, it's not time for that. I don't know if that's a, a good analogy, but here's in simple terms what my eschatology is, what my belief on the end times is. Um, limitless, no limits, no limits eschatology. We'll do it three words, no limits eschatology. And what, is, what does that mean? Well, again, Jesus said, occupy till I return. And occupying is a military terminology. And it's like, you take land, be in the seven mountains, you be there, carry my presence. Kingdom of God is not advanced through imposition on people, only imposition on demonic forces. It's it advanced through influence, through his presence, through his love, through his, with his solutions. Occupy till I return. Even in him giving that instruction, he didn't have some accomplish, accomplish this. It's occupy until I return. And so in that, there's people like, would you actually believe all the nations could walk to the light of the sons of God, uh, as you imply out of Isaiah 60? I was like, maybe. He doesn't clearly tell us yes, tell us no. Some say there is no way the kingdom can fully come in until the king comes in. Maybe. All I know is he said, you are the light of the world. And he didn't say, don't try to bring all the light that I am, you know, just like limit it. You can't do it all. You can do 50%, 20%, even 90%. He doesn't put limits. He says, occupy till I return. We know that throughout scripture, he always has this thing where he's testing our faith and us. You know, it's like the prophet Elisha with uh, the king and is like, shoot the arrows and right. whatever. And he does three. He's like, why did you only do three? We don't see anywhere where he tries to put limits on how much of his kingdom will advance. I love that. That's the God I know. And that's the God I know. So that's why it's no limits eschatology. Can the whole kingdom come in before he returns and he celebrates with it? Maybe. And why not? Why not? There's no, you know, anytime you put limits on yourself, that's the problem with embracing some of these other uh, terminologies. At some point you go, it's just like this thing, again, in the minds of several pastors who have talked to me, is like, well, we don't want to advance the agenda too much because we're going to hit those seven seals, and that's bad news. So can you see how that would be sabotaging uh, a, a proper advancing of the kingdom of God? Is if you're like, we don't want to advance too much because then we'll hit those bad seven seals. Those seven seals, they exist already. And again, there's more mystery and more things to explain on them than we're doing right now. But we do not want to be uh, negatively negatively impacted or affected by a perception on the end times on any kind of reduction restriction that does not come from him. It's You won't find it in any form. Just when you know the God we know, the God we know is not like, well, I mean, don't go. Don't, I mean, that's my part. Don't get into my part. Um, he is not saying that. That's why, again, Old Testament, New Testament, what does he say? You are the light of the world. You arise, you shine. My glory is going to be seen on you. Behold the darkness, but I will light on you. Uh, the God of the God of peace will crush Satan under our feet. And, and so greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. You see that over and over, both in scriptures, both in examples, whether it's David and Goliath. He didn't like, no, well, don't actually kill him. That's my job. No, it's like, and y'all get the picture. No limits, eschatology. Believe that, stand for that, and you'll be okay. You will not be criticized in heaven for believing that. And Jesus himself prayed, our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth 
as it is in heaven. As I'm, it is. I know that you have a teaching that you've given on that in the past. As it is means as it is in heaven. Like in heaven, everything is already perfect. And so, you know, whether we'll see that or not, that's certainly something we're supposed to ask for here on earth. Occupy towards that end until I come. And dream into as it is. Yeah. You know, we all can carry an aspect of that as it is. What What is it that you have a glimpse into heaven and into the kingdom? And, you know, the kingdom age, Jesus said the kingdom is here and the kingdom is coming. And then we know that from the original prophecy about the birth of Jesus, that of the increase of his government, there will be no end. There's not a two steps forward and a one step back with this. With the kingdom, it's always only ever increasing. It's always only forward. And so to the degree that we align ourselves with the king and his kingdom, then we have our eyes on nothing but forward motion. And again, to reiterate, it's not dominionism. It's not us taking over the world. It is us becoming like Christ and laying our lives down and serving and knowing a God that cares. And, and because we know he cares, we access through our intimacy with him, we access those solutions to the problems that exist on the small level and on the big level on the tops of the mountains, all the way to the bottom yes, of the mountains. top to bottom, bottom to top. So, you know, a couple of, just to wrap it up, um, I just think it's important, one of the things I wrote down to come back to is we have to realize as humans, our propensity, and I would even go on to say as followers of Jesus, we have a propensity to embrace theologies that make it okay to stay like we are. That's right. And that is dangerous. Theologies, whether we teach them out loud or we secretly believe them and practice them, theologies that make it okay to stay like we are. And, And if we are connected to a king and a kingdom that is ever increasing, then God's always got his finger on the next thing in us individually and as his church and as society. The next thing he has his finger on that he wants to grow us up in. And that means, you know, we can't stay like we are. We have to be willing to embrace change and and see scripture from new perspectives and be willing, you know, as scary as it is, to actually question voices that we think are somehow closer to God and have a better perception on scripture than we do. And I love that about you. I love that you... um, you don't approach anything you believe through what someone else has speculated about it. But you arrive at your own conclusions. You will research. You will hear what other people have discovered and thought and had opinions on, but not from the perspective of tell me truth. You're looking to the Holy Spirit to speak to you truth, and you're looking for confirmation in Scripture. You're looking for confirmation through others. But it's not just spoon feed me, you know, and I think that, again, we take the easier way out. And as Christians, we want to just, you know, pay a pastor to dig into scripture so that we can just go for an hour every week and let them tell us what the Bible says. And we, we've lost um, our own 
he's made us kings and priests and a, a, a king and a priest, you know, walks in the authority that they have and they don't look for someone else to be the go between, between them and God. And, um, so I would, I would say that's the final thought that I have. Do you have any final thoughts that you wanted to wrap up? Um, well on that, you know, I just recommend, uh, you know, thank you for saying that Elizabeth, what you're saying really about, um, you know, not listening too much on what is the prevailing thought on a scripture, whatever. What I, I I like to approach scripture, and even if I've already heard a lot, I'm like, okay, I want to read this as if I've never heard any study, anybody speak on it, any perspective. If I just, you know, a Bible was... Uh, dropped. I'm in an island. I live by myself and a Bible is dropped uh, in front of me. And this is what I read for the first time and had no other point of reference for what would I think it's saying. And because when we approach scripture in a different way, it's like, okay, let me see. Do I think this fits into the preterite, partial preterite, mid-trib, post-trib? Um, th then you're trying you're... to fit the Bible into someone's... Yes understanding of the Bible. And it's not wrong to, um, to, to look into that as well. And if you feel like you're called to, you know, to be a, a defender of a particular position, whatever. But again, when Elizabeth says it's not in the Bible, you don't see those descriptives. You do see kingdom. You do see, um, uh, you know, my church. I will build my church in the gates of hell. You see him talking those types of perspective. And so he doesn't bring mid-trib, post-trib, partial preterite, pre-preterite, all these uh, other scenarios that we could go into. Nothing wrong with it. I'm saying fine if you want to do that. But there's something about really uh, embracing what he's trying to connect us to, to know about. So no, I mean, I think this is just, as it, I already thought it was so important even when we did this book, Rise, but the, the last two years have made it infinitely more clear how important this matter is. It's literally the number one thing the enemy is after is the prevailing narrative for the body of Christ, for the church. Mm -hmm. You just see that what they're doing, it's just like the enemy doesn't want the right narrative. He doesn't want truth. That's why you get, you violated community standards if you don't say what they want said that advances or at least allows their agenda. And so this this is the big battle before us. That's why a lot of the exposures coming are going to be from church and church movements, the infiltration that's come into um, theological seminaries, into regular seminaries, to Christian universities, et cetera, et cetera. Big names that we've revered in Christianity for a long time, we're going to find out that there was um, payment involved from forces that want us out of irrelevant. They, the want, us they irrelevant. want us They want us irrelevant. They don't want us contending for our world. They don't want us arising and shining. They want us whining. What's Hiding what I say? and whining. Hiding and whining. Arise and shine. No, hide and whine. You can't arise and shine while you're running off to the hills and trying to save enough grain and gold and guns uh, to outlast the Antichrist. You know, we'll, we'll leave it at that. That's a good place to end. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Okay. 
Jesus, we love it that you are returning and you're returning for um, a bride who mm. is victorious just like you were. And we thank you for all that you accomplished so that we could um, walk in your strength and your power and, and your grace to overcome every obstacle that the enemy would throw our way that would exalt itself against the knowledge of who our Father is. And we thank you for the honor of living in a time where we can step back and begin to see some things that previous generations weren't able to see. And we ask that you would help us to be good stewards over that. We ask that if there's places in our hearts and our lives that we have um, embraced any theology that that was less than the truth and that allowed us to stay like we are and not move forward and grow up into all that you have for us. We just, we confess that. We ask that you would bring conviction that we would notice and, and see the truth. Um, we ask that you would make us bold, that we would not be distracted by um, demonic theologies that cause us to stay hidden and less than who you created us to be. And we ask that you would give us um, clarity in how we can speak truth in the midst of lies. And um, we ask that you forgive us for the ways that we have agreed with, um, watched, entertained ourselves with, bought um, materials that have just been a distraction, that they haven't positioned us for um the place of influence, light, and salt that you said that we are. And we ask that you would empower us, Holy Spirit, each one of us individually, to step forward into the fullness of the destiny and the authority that you've given each one of us at this time, because we know we were born for such a time as this. Amen. And we love you, Jesus. And with the Spirit, the bride says, come. We anticipate your return, and because we do, we choose to show up every day um, as your ambassadors. We think it is just a privilege and an honor to represent you. We want to know you so that we represent you even better than we ever have, better than any generation ever has. You deserve it. You are worthy. You are the lamb that was slain. Yeah. that broke the power of the lies that stood in the face of who our God really is. Thank you for all that you accomplished for us, Jesus. You are our king, and we say, as you taught us to, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it, it is. is in heaven. And before he comes for you, he's going to come to you so that he can come through you. Get that? Yeah, before he good. comes, he comes to you to come through you before he comes for you. That's, that's the order. That's the that's the order of how this thing happens. Christ in us, the hope of glory, even here on earth. All right. Well, we love y'all. Yep. See you next week on Up for Discussion.